Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. My name's David Lett, and I'm one of the co-directors of the Centre for Military and Security Law, and Clive is uh, one of the uh, people who is associated with the Centre for Military and Security Law at the ANU's College of Law. Thank you very much for coming along tonight to uh, listen to uh, Clive give a background on what, uh, for the world, and indeed um, for Australia uh, in particular, has got some significance. There's tremendous flows of people coming out of Syria, and the recent announcements uh, by the Australian government that uh, military action would be extended uh, into Syria by Australian um, Defence Force personnel has got some um, <laughs> remote but immediate impact uh, on us uh, in terms of the outcomes. So uh, Clive tonight is going to uh, provide you with some of the background, so perhaps some information that might explain why the situation in Syria is, or attempt to explain why that situation is. I um, hope he's also got a whole bunch of solutions for us at the end of the uh, talk, but I suspect that might be just a little bit uh, asking a bit too much at the uh, present time. But uh, certainly trying to understand the politics and the geography and the reality of that region, I think is uh, very, very important to then try and unpick the international relations or the legal issues that um, arise from the region. So uh, without more from me, Clive, look forward to your discussion. Thanks, David. Um, well, I was going to talk about North Korea, actually, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I deal with national security issues and I've been travelling in North Korea, but uh, Catherine said I should do this one because of the refugee crisis and, uh, and I'll come and do the North Korean one a bit later. Okay, thanks. Uh, just to give you a bit of uh, perspective, in the military you always start off with a map. Uh, that's the, the way we tend to do things. Uh, just to show you what, what's around that region, Iraq, obviously Turkey, Israel, Jordan. Um, I've worked in Turkey and Jordan and Israel. Uh, I've not worked in Lebanon or Syria or Iraq for that matter. And this is the, uh, the, the uh, townships and so on of, uh, of Syria. As you can see, it's uh, uh, more populated towards the west than it is elsewhere in the country. And the reason for that is pretty obvious, I think, from this picture, which shows you that most of the eastern side of the country, the two-thirds of the country to the east, is pretty much desert. Uh, so mostly the population centres are along rivers or areas where there's water. Um, the distance from uh, the Turkish border to Raqqa, which is where Islamic State has its headquarters, is uh, 107 k's. It's not a brilliant road, that's why it takes an hour and 37 minutes to cover the distance. But uh, it gives you some idea maybe of the distances involved. Um, this is what the area would look like in relation to Australia. Um, you know, we tend to sort of 
take distances for granted, but of course, Sydney to Melbourne, uh, Sydney to Perth is a substantial distance compared with distances in Europe, not like London to Moscow, for example. Um, these are just some other comparisons. Land area of Syria is about uh, twice the size of Tasmania. Uh, GDP 108 billion, which is about 13th of Australia's. Per capita income about $5,000 US, whereas Australia is about 47,000. Uh, population 22.5 million, or, although remaining in the country about 18 million. Uh, life expectancy 68, ours is 83. Uh, median age 23, Australia's 38 and youth unemployment is 30% there, compared to ours about 12%. So Syria in the 20th century, <clears throat> I'm not going back before that because I don't think there's a lot of value from our point of view, but the modern Syrian state was established after the First World War as a French mandate. You might remember that Lawrence got angry because he said that the British did the dirty on the Arabs and had promised Faisal an Arab state and all the rest of it. Uh, anyway, the reality was that France and Britain divided up the Middle East between them. Um, but Syria um, was the largest Arab state to emerge from what had previously been the, uh, uh, the Levant. This is the area of the Levant. And this is what uh, French Syria looked like in 1924. It included Lebanon uh, and had different areas which were Alawite, um, Alexandretta and Jabal Druze, um, and then south of that was the British Mandate. Anyway, the French Mandate lasted until 1943 when two independent countries uh, emerged from the Mandate period, and that was Syria and Lebanon. And then on the 24th of October 1945, Syria became a founding member of the United Nations, and then on the 17th of April 1946, it gained its independence as a parliamentary republic. In 1949, though, the uh, fledgling democracy was overturned by the recently established CIA in a right-wing coup. Uh, the reason for that was because the existing government was blocking uh, the, the construction of a, the Trans-Arabian Pipeline, which was going to go across Syria to take oil from American wells through to the Mediterranean. And the government blocked it, wouldn't allow it. so. The obvious thing to do then is to change the government to one which will be compliant. So that's what happened. Uh, the pipeline doesn't exist anymore because um, it's no longer an economical way to move, move oil. Anyway, following a further coup in 63, the Ba'ath Party came to power, which is a nationalist party. And since then, the Alawite-dominated Ba'ath Party has been the political authority in Syria. Uh, just to mention what the Alawites are, in case you're not aware, um, they are actually a branch of Shia Islam, uh, the same as the Iranians, and uh, they are centered in Syria. So they have common cause with other Shia groups elsewhere in the Middle East. And what's happening in Syria, there, it is very much a religious dimension to what's happening. Um, Syria's population, as I said, was 22.5 million. Of that, 74% were Sunni Muslim, um, which included Turks and Kurds. 12% uh, only were Alawite, 10% Christian, and then 4% other groups. But the majority of the people, Syrian background, who live outside of Syria, and there are something like 18 million of them around the world, including 
Australia are Christians of the Eastern Orthodox churches and Eastern Rite churches. So um, they are actually a lot, quite a lot different to the ones that are actually remaining in, in Syria. So this is the, uh, the, where the different religious groups live. And you can see there over to the east, the Yazidis. Um, they, of course, have been rounded up pretty much by the Islamic State people. And the women have been enslaved and the men have either fled or been slaughtered. Um, there are also other pockets of Christians. But essentially, the eastern side of the country is Sunni Muslim. Um, the Druze are a form of Islam, but many Muslims regard them as heretics because of their, of their practice of Islam. Um, but the area that, we're, um, that is mainly uh, Shia is the western edge of the country, which is uh, essentially where the government and the main sort of part of the, uh, the country is, is located in terms of um, the leadership and so on. If you look at the northern part of uh, Syria, you can see there that um, uh, the Kurdish areas uh, extend through parts of the north. They're not shown separately on that previous map because of them being Sunni Muslims. Anyway, looking at the uh, Al-Assad dynasty, uh, Syria remained unstable politically until 1970 when um, Hafiz al-Assad, who was an Alawite, seized power and declared himself president. Uh, he soon banned all opposition and in 1981-82 uh, there was a, an insurgency going on throughout the country which he ruthlessly suppressed, uh, particularly in the area of Hama, now known as the Hama Massacre, in which at least 20,000 people were killed. Since then there have been other smaller uprisings involving members of the Muslim Brotherhood and other mainly Sunni anti-regime elements uh, and they have also been brutally suppressed. So this is Hama, as it was in 1982. Looks rather reminiscent of places like Beirut and Syria today, I guess. This is the uh, family tree of the Assad uh, dynasty. Hafez, who was married to Anisa Makhlouf, who's a very rich family. Um, and then he had children, uh, Bushra, Basil, Basha, Majid, and Maher. Um, two of them have died and uh, and, and Bushra had a, has a son, or had a son, Asif Shawkat, and um, Bashir is married to Asma al-Assad, or I'll say a bit more about in a moment. This is a family picture uh, in 1994, uh, showing the, uh, the full family. Anyway, Hafez al-Assad died in 2000, and he was succeeded by his, only, his oldest surviving son, who was Bashar al-Assad. Um, Bashar al-Assad was actually too young to take power under the constitution, so they changed the constitution, which of course is a very Russian approach. If it doesn't suit you, you, you change it. Um, so he took over when he was 34. Um, he was an ophthalmologist uh, by training and speaks fluent English because he uh, trained in London. And he's got a British-born wife who's of Syrian background, uh, asthma. And uh, there was some hope that these two would introduce reforms, allow reforms to take place. Uh, however, um, the leading activists called for democratic elections and a campaign of civil disobedience, and that spooked the, uh, the power brokers. And so there was a crackdown with the arrest and, uh, of the leading activists. 
And since then, there have been periodic promises to do something about the electoral system and so on. But uh, essentially, I think Basha would be receptive, but I think the power brokers are not. So that's why it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, regime people say that uh, Bashar doesn't have Hafez al-Assad's absolute grip on power. Um, I suppose in that respect he's a bit like Kim Jong-un. Uh, anyway, instead he's surrounded by a powerful group, mostly, well, they're all Alawites, but they're mostly family or related in some way. And of course they rely on the status quo remaining in order to uh, keep having the privileges and the power and wealth that they've got. Anyway, there was an uprising in 2011, which was related to the Arab Spring. And, uh, and that, as you know, had spread through the Middle East. And, uh, and in uh, Syria, Hassan Ali Akleh, from the town of Al-Hasaka, which is up in the north, doused himself with petrol and set himself on fire. And that was then sort of the uh, lead into mass protests. And the security situation has deteriorated since then. Um, as the situation got more out of hand, then the regime threw more assets at it and cracked down even more. So there was some pretty brutal suppression happened in 2011-2012. These were where most of the, um, um, the minor and major protests took place. Uh, this is a map from 2011. So it was fairly well spread and as I said, al Hasaka was where um, the fellow set fire to himself. Uh, many cities ended up in ruins, such as Homs, which is Syria's la third largest city. Um, and I don't think much uh, they've recovered very much since then. Anyway, the international media portrayed the events in Syria as a brutal regime, uh, forcing, uh, massacring civilians or, and freedom fighters. Even so, um, the regime, because it was sectarian, I think did attract a certain degree of support because it was a bit like under Saddam, if you behaved yourself uh, and you didn't sort of oppose the government, uh, you could have a reasonable life there. And it, certainly for women, there was uh, the prospect of professional advancement, uh, which is not that common in the Middle East. But the diaspora, I think, because of their makeup, I said mostly they were Christians, uh, and they regarded um, the alternative to uh, uh, to Assad as being detrimental to their interests, tended to support Assad. And that was true of uh, the diaspora in Australia. They had rallies uh, in 2011-2012, but um, they've, since then they've been keeping a low profile. But I would say pretty likely that most of the Syrian diaspora in Australia would still be supporting Assad. Um, and that's the reason, of course, is that they feel that they're better off with Assad than the, than the alternative which would be most likely a fundamentalist Islamic state with strict Wahhabi interpretation of Sharia law, which Saudi Arabia had any say in it, that's what would happen. And there would be low tolerance for other religions. These are the uh, uh, power brokers, but I'll come to it in a moment. But on the 18th of July, 2012, um, a bomb detonated at a meeting of uh, high level security people in Damascus and um, it killed and wounded a number of the senior regime people. Uh, the Syrian-owned television said that um, it was a suicide attack, while other people say that it was actually a remotely detonated bomb. So we don't really know what the truth of the matter is. But um, uh, 
It wounded uh, Maher, who is Bashar's younger brother and the 4th Division commander. It killed the Deputy Minister of Defence and Head of Intelligence. Uh, killed the head of the Crisis Centre on the Uprising, who was the guy who was basically the operational commander. Uh, killed the Defence Minister. Uh, wounded the Interior Minister, who's responsible for intelligence and security. Um, these are the people, I don't know if they were at the meeting or not, um, but they, they were not wounded or injured. Uh, they probably weren't at the meeting. Uh, Rami Makhlouf is a very important, as I mentioned, the Makhlouf family, very wealthy, and they often have been behind the scenes financing the regime. And uh, Rami is the sort of the current generation of that family. Um, another important figure is the defence minister who took over from the one who was killed and uh, he's now also Deputy Prime Minister. So looking at some of the external interests in uh, Syria, uh, you've got the Arab League. They would like to see a democratic regime in Damascus, but they're a bit wary of the knock-on effects elsewhere because, for example, Bahrain is undemocratic and if you had a democratic election there, uh, the current leadership would get thrown out. Uh, of course, Saudi Arabia is not very democratic either. Um, so while they would like to see a change uh, in, uh, in Syria, it's, uh, it's going to be problematic because in particular Saudi Arabia and Qatar have been supporting armed opposition groups, so the likelihood is that um, they would end up with an undemocratic, fairly extreme regime there um, as, as the outcome if Assad went. Uh, Russia and China um, had been pretty ticked off because um, they felt that they were outflanked in Libya because they allowed for uh, uh, NATO involvement on the basis of humanitarian intervention, but then they found that they, were lo they lost out on, uh, on making any money out of Libya afterwards, which of course um, NATO was in a better position to do, but I'm not sure that NATO actually made any money out of it either because of course Libya has pretty much come apart at the seams anyway. <coughs> Anyway, the UN in Syria has been largely ineffectual because it only has observer status, so it tends to get criticised by both the government and the opposition elements. Uh, Iran's interests, um, it supports regional Shia groups, um, particularly, as I said, the al-Assad regime. Uh, it supports Lebanese Hezbollah and does that, has done that through Syria. And of course, it doesn't want to see a Sunni-dominated regime emerge in Syria. Turkey would like to see regime change in Syria in order to res restore some of its Ottoman glory and to expand its influence in the uh, Arab world. Um, I think it provides tacit support to Islamic State in the sense that it doesn't interfere much with uh, foreign fighters going through Turkey. Most of the people who have gone from Australia have gone through Turkey to get to Syria, as have most of other foreign fighters. Um, and uh, the reason for that is because they see Islamic State as a good buffer against um, Kurdish separatism and also against Iran's spreading influence. Um, anyway, it's, it's also a member of NATO though, so it's sort of caught there a bit because it has to, at the same time, provide some access to NATO uh, aircraft and, of course, US aircraft are flying out of uh, Turkey to do airstrikes on Islamic State. Uh, Russia has been a constant supporter of the Assad dynasty, uh, had a base at Tartar since 1970. Not really very substantial, but sufficient for vessels to call in and get replenishment and so on. 
Um, that's the, uh, the base at, or the port at Tartus, part of which is used by the Russians. Um, in May 2010, President Medvedev was the first Russian head of state to visit Syria, and uh, he used that as an opportunity to improve bilateral relations and also to promote arms sales, as you do. And uh, now Russian arms contribute something like 65% of Syria's purchases. They've also got an electronic surveillance station south of Damascus, which is used to monitor US, Israeli, and NATO uh, communications traffic. It's also able to provide early warning if uh, Israeli aircraft were to take off and head towards Iran. Uh, China has got significant trade relations with Syria, worth nearly two billion a year, uh, 2.2 billion a year, uh, and it's almost entirely in China's favor. Uh, China's also actively involved in the oil industry there. Uh, China's also been selling air defense radars to uh, the Syrian armed forces. Uh, Western European governments, I think, largely don't want to get involved. Uh, there's a sanctions regime against Syria. Um, and that's about the extent of it. I think um, some of them have got involved through NATO, uh, but they've generally not been wanting to get too much involved against uh, Assad. Um, mostly it's easier to blame Russia for what goes wrong in Syria. And uh, Australia has got no real particular strategic interest, I don't think, other than the alliance relationship um, with, in relation to what goes on in Syria. Uh, but. Um, of course, it has been quite an active member of the US-led coalition, and it's only one of only four countries that are doing airstrikes in both Syria and Iraq, uh, the others being the United States, Canada, and Jordan. Uh, the UK isn't doing both countries. Um, Israel and the US see regime change as a way of containing Iranian and Hezbollah influence in the Levant. Um, the US also believes that attacking Islamic State in Syria will limit its ability to destabilize Iraq. Um, Israel has reportedly been covertly arming Syrian opposition groups, while the CIA has reportedly been providing arms to opposition groups through Lebanon and Turkey. In fact, uh, Obama, because of the failure of that 500 billion training program, uh, has now said it's going to provide weapons to the uh, moderates among the armed opposition groups. Anyway, looking at the Syrian armed forces, <clears throat> 178,000, uh, theoretically 10 million men available for service. The armed forces, even though Alawites are only 12% of the population, they make up 65% of the armed forces and 80% of the officers are Alawites. So they keep a grip on, the, the, on power uh, and you know, the, the, the levers for power. Uh, most of the weapons acquired by Syria have come from Eastern Bloc, uh, Russia, Belarus, Iran, China, and North Korea. It's got quite a large number of uh, T-72 tanks. Um, also got quite a lot of air defense capability, which is another reason why I think uh, Western nations have been reluctant to get much involved in airstrikes anywhere near the Western side of, uh, of Syria. Um, has some elite units, including Bashir's brother's unit, uh, which is the Republican Guard and the 4th Mechanized Division. Um, most of the conscripts are Sunnis, uh, but uh, of course uh, the, their loyalty may be questionable. And uh, so, uh, you know, there's a difficulty perhaps in making use of them at times. 
the intelligence and security side of things is very powerful in Syria. Um, they've got a range of intelligence organizations there. And um, usually they sort of wear civilian clothes and dark glasses. Um, so they're sort of fairly obvious. <laughs> Maybe that's the intention. Um, anyway, they're responsible for regime security, identifying counter-regime elements and so on. Um, these guys who look a bit like something out of the Borg, um, they're the riot police in Damascus. Um, I don't think they have many riots in Damascus these days, but uh, they're quite a substantial in number according to the IIS, International Institute for Strategic Studies. Then there's the Shabiho, which is um, a, a group that's not acknowledged, um, but these are Alawite uh, armed militias, and they wear civilian clothes, uh, basically they're thugs and members of the security forces, and they're often put into an area after the, uh, uh, the opposition withdraw, and they've been responsible for killing civilians in those areas, massacres. Uh, the regime has um, made use of some innovative weapons against the, um, the armed opposition groups, for example, the barrel bombs. Um, the opposition groups know that it's difficult to conduct airstrikes on civilian areas without causing civilian casualties. Um, so they tend to, to go into those areas. But I don't think the regime is so bothered about that. It, it will deter the US-led coalition from doing strikes because we wouldn't do strikes on civilian areas, even if there's Islamic State people there. But I don't think the regime is particularly bothered. They'll still drop bar barrel bombs and, uh, and kill the locals as well as armed opposition people. Uh, the people who are actually assisting uh, the regime include uh, Lebanese Hezbollah. They've committed to providing security around Lebanon, uh, around the border with Lebanon. They've also provided people to go and fight for Aleppo. Uh, they're also supporting Iraqi and Iranian forces uh, fighting in <coughs> Iraq. Um, Iran has got uh, quite a large number of um, Quds force officers fighting uh, with the Syrian armed forces. And there's also probably up to 3,000 members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps there as well. Uh, their main role is intelligence and logistics support. Uh, Russia, um, as you know, they've intervened with airstrikes from the 30th of September. And um, mainly they've been targeting Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the al-Nusra Front, which is an al-Qaeda-linked group, and the Jaysh al-Fatah, which is a military coalition group, because they pose the most immediate threat to the regime. Islamic State doesn't really pose much of a threat to uh, Assad's regime. So there's been a build-up of um, Russian aircraft, pretty simple objective, which is something, of course, the U.S. lacks. And uh, whether, of course, uh, they can prevail with, uh, because, uh, you know, we've tried airstrikes and, and local troops on the ground elsewhere, and it hasn't uh, necessarily worked. Looking at the external opposition, uh, there is a national coalition for... Uh, Syrian Revolutionary and Opposition Forces, which was established under US pressure, uh, but it was an uneasy coalition, uh, not recognised by most of the people actually doing the fighting, uh, but it was, you know, somebody, something that could be supported. But the people who are the fighters say that they're carpetbaggers who are living in $500 rooms in hotels and uh, not doing very much for Syria. 
looking at the armed opposition to uh, the regime, um, usually referred to by the government as uh, armed terrorists, uh, you've got uh, a number of different groups. The Free Syrian Army, which may be as 45 to 60,000. Often the figures are inflated by the groups, so I tend to go with the lower number rather than the higher number. Uh, you've got the Islamic Front, you've got various jihadist groups like uh, Jabhat al-Nusra. Then there's a Khorasan group, which the US has uh, labelled as a threat to the United States, but there's some doubt even whether it exists. It may have a few people in it, but it doesn't really pose a threat to anyone as far as I could see. Um, there's another military coalition uh, called the Army of Conquest. Um, the Free Syrian Army has its main base just across the border in Turkey, <coughs> across from Aleppo. And then you've also got another group, uh, Islamic Movement of the Free Men of the Levant, which is, again, maybe 10,000 people, something like that. So there's lots of different groups, and I haven't mentioned the ones that are much smaller than these. There are literally hundreds of different groups, often localised, who are fighting either for the against the regime or fighting against each other. Um, so it's a pretty difficult situation on the ground, which is, of course, why people are fleeing the area, because uh, you often don't know who your enemy is. And uh, there's a lot of uh, um, uh, violence generally. Anyway, the armed opposition in military terms are lightly armed, uh, but they get a lot of weapons in from Syria and Lebanon. And their preferred option is the AK-47 or the more recent one, which is the AK-74. Uh, there are also Kurdish fighters and separatists. Um, the Kurds, I think, are mainly interested in nationalism than they are in fighting anybody else, uh, except, of course, to preserve nationalism or to try and separate parts of Turkey away from Turkey, which is why Turkey has been uh, attacking them. But um, there's a, a range of those groups, and they're quite large in number. Um, and, of course, they've had their own state in northern Iraq ever since 1993, when the no-fly zone was established. Um, Islamic State, <clears throat> I'd say, is probably 31,000, something like that. But it often works in coalition with other groups, so the numbers can go up and down depending on who it's working with. Um, it's got uh, elements outside of Syria and Iraq in places like Libya. So the total number, probably something around the 50,000 mark of Islamic State. Uh, but the ones in Syria, maybe 30,000, something like that. Most of the fighting in Syria is done by foreign fighters, not by uh, uh, locals. The local Syrians are not much involved with Islamic State, and um, Islamic State is essentially is an Iraqi group, and that's their main interest, is in the, maintaining the caliphate, which of course extends from Syria into Iraq. Um, they're pretty well equipped. In fact, they're using a lot of equipment provided by the Americans to fight against the more moderate groups. Um, when uh, Mosul fell, uh, they captured 2,300 Humvees, um, so they're pretty well off. Uh, they're even using Humvees as local taxis in parts of Syria and Iraq now. Um, there's a big question mark about the Toyotas. Uh, they like Toyotas because, as you know, Toyota keep going. Even if you don't put oil or anything in them, they just keep on going. Um, but um, I suspect these are vehicles that were provided by the Americans to the moderate groups in Syria and had then been taken off them by Islamic State. I think that's where they came from, which is why the US, I don't think, is making a big effort to find out where they came from. 
That's conjecture. I don't know that for sure. Um, anyway, I think IS is less concerned with fighting against Assad's forces because they're actually selling oil to Syria, as they are to Turkey as well, and to Jordan. So um, there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that are sort of uh, counterintuitive, I guess you'd say. But certainly Islamic State is the most ruthless regime, or most ruthless group, rather, um, even teaching primary school children how to cut throats and that sort of thing, and uh, a pretty awful, uh, awful group, as you know. <clears throat> anyway, current military situation <clears throat> is that um, these are the areas that are held by different elements. The white area pretty much is desert area, which nobody really wants to fight over. Um, but you can see there are pockets of regime control, like at Hasekah still, uh, which where, is where a lot of the um, American airstrikes have been going in to uh, uh, try and uh, deter Islamic State. Uh, Raqqa, as I said, is where Islamic State is based. Um, uh, there's a fighting going on around Aleppo, which as far as I know is still being held by the regime. Uh, it's not shown that as that on this particular map, but it is on the next one. Um, Uh, this is an institute of the study of war, and uh, as you can see, the, you know, it's essentially pretty much the same as the, uh, as the previous one. But um, it shows that um, Islamic State essentially is sort of uh, covers uh, mainly highway areas and that sort of thing. It's, um, and the Euphrates River is where a lot of the population centers are going down towards Baghdad. So there's a lot of towns along that way, and they have quite a substantial holding on the towns going down towards Baghdad. The level of control hasn't really changed very much in the last 12 months. Uh, anyway, the death toll keeps going up. Um, one estimate is 230,000, with 20,000 children being killed. And in August this year, um, 2040 died according to that website. It's very hard to judge, actually, I mean, how accurate some of these websites are. Anyway, this just shows you the number of airstrikes that have taken place so far uh, by the US-led coalition. Uh, most of, well, uh, twice as many in Iraq as in Syria. And uh, more recently, they've been running out of targets in Syria because very hard to strike anything that's not going to kill civilians there. The Russians are not being so bothered about that if they've got armed opposition groups there, they'll drop bombs anyway, uh, or, or conduct airstrikes. Um, you can see there that from the number of strikes that the US is way out in front of anybody else, because they've got, of course, far more aircraft there than anybody else. Um, Australia, relatively modest number of uh, airstrikes. I don't know, 200 maybe, something like that. Um, these are where the airstrikes have been going in in Syria. Um, as I mentioned, well, Hasakar has been getting quite a few airstrikes. The Mosul Dam area, which had fallen to Islamic State and has since been recovered by Kurdish forces, uh, attracted a lot of um, airstrikes to dislodge Islamic State. Kobani, which was a fight that went on last year, uh, was retaken by the uh, Kurds. Uh, and again, a lot of airstrikes went into that area. Uh, if we look at where What's happened in the period 30th of September when the Russians started to the 5th of October, you can see that there are some places where there are Russian and coalition strikes fairly close to each other. So there is a danger there of, 
uh, they need to coordinate their activities, obviously. So the military outlook is, uh, sadly, uh, more conflict, more refugees, more deaths, uh, regional instability, uh, major power rivalries, which will continue to play out. Uh, if Bashar al-Assad was assassinated, that might change things, I think. Um, but I think we're heading towards maybe the eventual partition of the country along the lines of Sunni and Alawite, uh, as I showed you on the map earlier. Now I'm going to just uh, address the refugee issue. <clears throat> uh, the number of internal refugees, I don't know. I've not been able to find a, a good figure, but it's a very substantial number of people are actually moving around within the country to try and avoid violence. Uh, this is one of the refugee areas in uh, uh, the Armour refugee camp in uh, Damascus. <clears throat> Looks almost sort of medieval, doesn't it? Um, uh, the appearance of the place and the, the people like that. Um, issues with becoming a refugee, which are general ones. Um, obviously, there are push factors with refugees. There's um, things like conflict, unemployment, environmental degradation, discrimination, lack of security, crime, unsafe environment, and so on. You can think of probably <coughs> lots more. And then there are pull factors, which are things like uh, safety and security, employment, social benefits, uh, better life prospects, uh, welcoming environment, maybe having family members there, other members of the same nationality, that sort of thing. They're all pull factors. So those two things tend to work uh, in synergy. Anyway, these are the areas where uh, people are tending to move from because, of course, they're the more dangerous areas to be in. And... Uh, the ones that have crossed the border into Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, Egypt, and North Africa total, according to UNHCR, uh, more than 4 million. And most of those, nearly 2 million, are in Turkey. Um, uh, and you can see the other figures yourself. And this essentially is where they are, um, usually in sort of areas bordering onto uh, Syria. I think one of the telling aspects, of course, is that the um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE haven't taken very many. In fact, I don't think they've taken any. They have taken some refugees, but not to do with Syria, as far as I know. Looking at uh, the EU situation, uh, during the period 2010 to 2014, they've taken in nearly uh, 1.4 million uh, non-EU nationals as... Uh, asylum seekers or migrants. And um, the orange line is people who uh, come in as asylum applicants. And uh, the blue is um, people who have come in as illegal border crossers. <coughs> anyway, the triggers for the, um, <coughs> the European migrant crisis this year, uh, mainly Macedonia's announcement that it would relax transit restrictions. At one stage, it was preventing people from transiting Macedonia, but it said it would allow people to spend 48 hours, I think it was, in the country, and they just give them a transit visa to go through, providing they didn't stop. So that made it possible for people to get through and head in the direction of Germany. Um, and this also made it cheaper because going via Libya was much more expensive, and going via uh, Turkey and Greece is probably a third of the price. Uh, I think uh, Chancellor Merkel's uh, announcement that Germany would have an open door policy 
and also there was a lot of media coverage of welcoming people. I think that acted as an attraction as well, uh, because people do watch the TV in the in the camps and so on. And I think the increasing military conscription in Syria was also another factor driving people out of Syria. <clears throat> so this is where the uh, the flow of people started to come from. Uh, instead of going from the bottom left there towards uh, Lampedusa and, and Italy, they started flowing across from Turkey to Greece and then up through Serbia and uh, Macedonia into Hungary and then uh, uh, into uh, making their way towards Germany. I think other contributing factors to the flow of people was the, um, uh, the youth bulge that exists in a number of countries coupled with high unemployment, the fact that there are conflicts going on in Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan, I think the general rise of violent Sunni Islamist extremism, uh, the long delays with UNHCR placements, and just living in the camps, I would imagine, would be pretty depressing, uh, and perceptions, I think, that Western countries uh, offer prospects for a better life, which were not being offered by Muslim countries, ironically. Anyway, according to the UNHCR, as of mid-September, 74% uh, of the almost 500,000 Mediterranean Sea arrivals uh, were coming from Syria. Um, <coughs> uh, were coming from Syria, Afghanistan and Eritrea, and of those, 54% were from Syria. Um, if you look at the migrant uh, figure, though, for 2015, uh, it's interesting to see that there is actually a flow of people from other places as well. So while Syria is providing the most people, uh, Kosovo is also providing an awful lot. Uh, Afghanistan is third, Albania is fourth, Iraq, Eritrea, Serbia, and so on. So there's a lot of people flowing into Europe for what they see as the benefits of being in, say, uh, you know, uh, Western Europe. <coughs> Once you get into the Schengen area, uh, you can travel around that without having passports and so on. So uh, that's another benefit once you get into those places. But it's better to be registered in somewhere like Germany because Germany has been offering more benefits as, as have the Scandinavian countries. But Scandinavian countries are a bit harder to get to. <clears throat> so looking at the July uh, uh, 2014 to July 2015 figure, and that's before the big flow started. Um, 80,000 had come out of Syria, and of those, 45,000 had gone to Germany. And then you can see sort of smaller numbers reflected there as well. Um, so some of the benefits, I think, for the European recipient nations were things like they're getting a lot of young workers, proactive people. Uh, and in the case of Germany, I think Germany... Uh, from an economic point of view, will do well out of those people because if you look at the demographics, they needed more young people in Germany. Um, I was a, an economist said to me the other day that I was saying I couldn't understand why Germany kept subsidising uh, Greece. And he said, oh, no, they needed Greece in the European Union because that kept the value of the euro down, which made German exports more competitive, which is sort of an interesting way of looking at things. But uh, anyway, um, so... Obviously, promotion of multiculturalism and the sort of benefits that you get from that. And I think also just the general feeling that, you know, helping people in need is one which is a positive thing. 
I think some of these are concerns which are general in relation to um, recipient nations, including Australia, concern about the development of migrant ghettos, <clears throat> um, being swamped by Muslims with their high birth rate and alien lifestyle, um, effects on employment for other citizens, uh, security concerns to do with Islamist extremism and the possibility of migrant involvement in crime, and the economic cost of absorbing large numbers of unskilled migrants. Um, some of those things, of course, are um, bizarre, but um, uh, I've noticed with the demonstrations recently about the mosque being established in Bendigo, I think it was, um, that people were saying, oh, you know, we don't want to live under Sharia law. I mean, that, that's never going to happen. So <laughs> it's, it's bizarre what people believe, perhaps. Um, anyway, uh, this is my last slide, I think. Um, the UNHCR assessment for Syria, no political solution in sight, military confrontation continuing, uh, the number of people affected is likely to increase, uh, the level of destruction of infrastructure, uh, shifting conflict lines, high levels of insecurity and so on will mean that it won't be very attractive for most of these people to go back there. Um, so I think that you know the refugee flow will continue. Um, I guess that uh, a lot of the people in the camps will, will become frustrated. Uh, but of course, also Europe is now going to make it more difficult, I think, in the future for people to get to Germany and uh, get into Europe. So um, I'm not sure where that's all going to go, but uh, I suspect more pressure on Australia to take more refugees will be the way that it happens. Um, that's it from me. Yeah. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.